Welcome to a new episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them across the country. I am your host, Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. Today we have Dr. Christina Jimenez, a professor of history at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. She specializes in Mexican history, Latin American history, and city and citizenship. Her research explores citizenship, urban politics, and popular culture in the Mexican city. As well as authoring several books, she has published in the Journal of Urban History, Black History Bulletin, and she co-edited The Matrix Reader, examining the dynamics of oppression and privilege. She is with us today at the caucus to talk about addressing power and privilege in your everyday interactions, which is something we so need to understand a lot more. Dr. Jimenez, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm so intrigued about uh, you having identified the relationship between power and privilege. Tell us how that evolved and then talk to us about the tie-in and the dynamic. Sure. So I am a, as you mentioned, an educator sure. in the university setting. It became very clear to myself and a group of colleagues who really wanted to understand better how to best support our students of color, our first-generation students in the university setting, um, students from more challenged socioeconomic backgrounds, how we could allow them to feel like they belonged at mm -hmm. the university. Mm -hmm. This is a, a place and space where they typically um, you know, didn't have a lot of previous experience with. Maybe their parents didn't go to college. So it really set me off a, a path of trying to understand, um, you know, supporting a diverse uh, population. And of course, that's an idea that connects well beyond education to um, healthcare, to, uh, you know, all sorts of institutions in society where we want to be sure that we're not perpetuating exclusion, but rather we're making everyone feel included. Absolutely. You know, diversity work in the 1990s, when I really got to it, was about what I call um, potlucks and celebration of holidays. And <laughs> okay. that's, that's important work to kind of add on to our discussions and our, you know, uh, kind of institutional practices. Um, a, a new array of, of maybe cultural experiences, okay. right? So people feel included. Right. But the more you look at the research, you realize that all sorts of uh, inequities that we see in our society are systemic. These are perpetuated at a structural level, and it has to do with just really complex connections around uh you know, racism, sexism, classism mm -hmm. that have, I'm a historian, have a long historic roots foundation in the U.S. and yes. other countries around the world. Uh, we have to understand that history. We have to understand that structural, uh, those structural dynamics if we're actually going to understand the situation that we're in. And, you know, my idea was that, uh, in my experience, is that 
I mean, celebrating Cinco de Mayo with a taco bar is great. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, tacos aren't going to solve systemic racism. So maybe it will be a place where we can start to have a conversation around it. But instead of just talking about diversity, uh, myself and a group of colleagues, we really started to want to talk about power, privilege, and oppression. So this is the way that power is circulated in ways to really benefit some people and to really oppress and exclude other people. And this is something in our systems, whether or not we're good individuals, we all participate in a society which has this not only history, but kind of built-in structural dynamics. So that's that's power, power, privilege, and oppression. And, you know, I can name many authors that have done so much amazing, extensive work on this. Um, of course, Peggy McIntosh is... I love her. Dr. McIntosh is incredible. She actually led one of our workshops in a previous year. Here, yeah. Here at Movement is Life. I know. She was here. So, yeah. you know, she identified this idea as a white woman um, that... Wow, she had this invisible knapsack of privilege that she kind of carried around with her is the way that she described it. Um, Because she was white, that her her colleagues of color did not experience. And she started thinking about all of the things that she could do that they couldn't do. For example, I can turn on the TV and, and see people that look just like me, she said. I can have my children be educated with textbooks that are telling the history in a positive way of kind of their cultural ancestors. I can go into the the drugstore and buy flesh-colored Band-Aids, and they actually are my flesh color. So she she identified these dynamics of of privilege based, in that case, on her racial identity as a white woman. But then she also started identifying as a woman how she couldn't do things that her male colleagues could do. Um, so that's the another social identity in terms of uh, gender, gender expression, where she was saying, hey, this is not just one thing. I'm not just a white person, therefore I experience privilege in all aspects of my life. Right. But rather, I'm a white woman, and therefore I might get these benefits that I haven't done anything to really earn, that the system just confers on me because that's what we call kind of a dominant normative racial identity in the U.S. Um, But as a woman, I'm in a completely different category. That leads us to the idea of intersectionality. Right. So, And she was willing to look at the lens, uh, look through the lens of intersectionality very early on and recognize that if she were white, as a white woman, she had certain uh, privilege based on race. Mm-hmm. As a woman, she had certain limitations based on gender. And when I heard her speak, she said, and then she actually thought about the fact that if you were a woman, you had certain limitations, but what if you were a black woman? And she went, I think that is what one of the things that I, that really moved me about her, that she was willing to take, uh, put herself in someone else's shoes, and those shoes she was completely shocked about. Yes. So 
she it was not the only uh, person, but you know, sure, an, sure, an sure. early um, I think voice for the idea that we need to think about these dynamics intersectionally. Um, and you know, as a historian, I know this this kind of whole concept really comes out of black feminists of the 1960s and 70s who understood that they did experience something different than their male colleagues. Yes. So it, um, yeah, it does have a long history. Patricia Hill Collins is, of course, the, the name that comes to mind. She talked about how we all have a variety of social locations or social identities, and that depending on not just our race and gender, but our socioeconomic class, actually where we live, I mean, yeah. we've, our, our kind of geographic location, we know this with some of the speakers that in Movement of Life have been talking about the challenges for rural communities in particular. Sure. Um, of course, your religion is going to um, impact the way that you um, are treated. So these are social identities that kind of will cue people in terms of their perceptions of you. And I think this is so important when we're thinking about our work as uh, educators or health providers, because we all have unconscious implicit biases. Um, we, might, we might try to eliminate them, but all sorts of research shows that as people, uh, we have a tendency to stereotype. Uh, we have a, a predispositions, the way our kind of cognitive brain is structured to just be biased implicitly, unconsciously. Well, and not only that, it was reinforced in the media by the information on the internet. I mean, I can't tell you that I've already had to have gender equity discussions with my sons who are nine and 10. And I'm listen, listen, buddies, okay, we're not gonna have any talk other than those of gender equity, because you see me cutting the grass just yeah. as you see your dad cooking, right? So you're not gonna sit here and, you know, we have these discussions. So no. it starts at a very early age, especially, and it might not be, you know, isolated to our society, but definitely here in the U.S. It starts so early, especially even due to those external and internal influences, I would think. Absolutely. And you, you talking about just gendered expectations around, uh, you know, a woman's work, quote unquote, oh, or yeah. femininity, and I think, you know, for boys and men, masculinity can be just an incredibly challenging and limiting box that they're put in. In order to be masculine in this society, you have to kind of measure up to these expectations. And of course, masculinity connects deeply to uh, notions of heteronormativity, which is the idea that... Um, if you're masculine, you need to be straight, quote unquote, because gay is often posed as a counterpoint to what it means to be masculine. What message, that's a message that is in our media, that's in our culture. What is that doing to um, young, young boys, men who know that they're gay, mm -hmm. are feeling that, right? So getting back to the idea of intersectionality, um, I'll take myself as an example. I am, um, I, I identify as Latina, I'm a woman, but I'm a white-skinned Latina. So my experience of being Latina is going to be mediated in terms of how people perceive me by a whole range of things. 
So my skin color, yes, my ethnicity, maybe when I'm speaking Spanish, there'll be another perception, certainly as a woman. But I have the privilege in terms of not having to worry about my sexuality and the way that people are perceiving me mm-hmm. and maybe um, judging or expressing, uh, oppressing or excluding me um, based on the fact that I am straight. So as a heterosexual, my husband and I can walk down the street and hold hands and not worry about threats to ourselves. Intersectionality gets at the idea that, and this is something we spoke about in the session, I see. Um, that we all experience based on a range of social identities, varying degrees of being included, feeling included, right? Or being kind of privileged by these systems of isms, right? Okay. Or being excluded by them or feeling oppressed by them. It's very important that I think for each of us, we do self-reflection and self-examination and think about, well, so maybe um, for me as a woman, I, I can experience, I know what it feels like to be excluded and oppressed. And there's allies I need to reach out to, to help kind of, you know, maybe change things for girls and women. But as a Christian, for example, or a straight woman, maybe there are things that I can do to really educate people around me, society, my spheres of influence about how, well, how how do Muslims feel in in our university context, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, how are they being treated? And in that sense, you use your different perspectives to create empathy and understanding and hopefully action for other social identities and social locations that, you know, are being excluded and oppressed. That are, that are being used to exclude. Okay. Exactly. Does that make sense? I'm, tra- I'm tracking with you now. A- I, am I? I okay. Really All right. So I make sure I was clear about this. Because my basic understanding was that inter- intersectionality originally grew out of the conversation about being a woman, but also being a black woman. But I hear you extrapolating it to some of the other social constructs that um, in, in which we live and grow in this in this particular, um, you know, in our nation. So I want to go back to the power. So are you saying that the power structure is is or centers around the more you said the heteromasculine normative? Yes. Okay, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I threw a lot out there. That just shows you super smart. Okay, so it's that hetero-masculine normative that is the holder of the power and the privilege. Is that at the core? Yes. We have to build sensitivities around the other identities that are not that because those are the ones that are oppressed because they are not hetero-masculine Normative. Normative. And I would add white in white, there, white. too. White, okay. Yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Okay. So okay. if we look at those three uh, social identities, for example, we have a, kind of a white racial identity a uh, that's privileged in, in our society. And let me give you a definition of privilege. And I'm just kind of read off okay, my sheet here. Good. So privilege is a systematic favoring, valuing, 
validating of certain kind of normative identities over others. So um, privilege is something that you're given. You can't opt out of it. It's not really something that you earn at all. It's something that you are just kind of receiving because you participate in a society, a system which is conferring certain privilege on you. Um, there's a great uh, quote here. I'm going to see if I could find it. This is um, by a scholar, uh, Harry Broad. He, he wrote, and I'm going to quote him here, um, we need to be clear that there's no such thing as giving up one's privilege to be outside of this system, mm. right? That one is always in the system. This, these are these kind of the system of, of um, just socialization and kind of structural, institutional, um, kind of societal dynamics. The only question, he says, is whether we're part of a system in a way that challenges or strengthens the status quo. And privilege is something that I would say we want to challenge in a way. So Harry, Harry Brode, in, in one of his um, pieces in a, actually a book called Men's Lives, he says, quote, we need to be clear that there's no such thing as giving up one's privilege to be outside the system. One is always in the system. The only question is whether one is part of the system in a way that challenges or strengthens the status quo. Privilege is not something I take and which therefore I have the option of not taking. Mm -hmm. It's something that society gives me. And unless I change the institutions which give it to me, they will continue to give it and I will continue to have it, however noble and egalitarian my intentions. Mm -hmm. So. This is the idea that it's not an individual choice to be or feel privileged, but it's something that the system confers onto you. Exactly. So our challenge, and this is the same with those other identities that you mentioned, heterosexism and- um, Masculinity. Masculinity, thank you. So our work around privilege, oppression, um, and power is to get people to see it. Because naming it, you know, it's like going to the doctor. You have to diagnose what the problem is first before you can kind of think about what, what is a, a treatment or what are steps towards moving to a healthier state. And I would say that, um, you know, what's very true is that Privilege often works in a way that it makes itself invisible. Um, so that, for example, a very common example is when you're describing someone who you just met, um, you'll say, or let's say, your doctor. I went to the doctor today. I have a new doctor. Oh, really? People say, what's he like? Yep. They don't, they're assuming. You don't have to say, I went to a male doctor. So I went to the doctor, and the male is invisible there yes. because it's the privileged norm idea that it's going to be a male doctor. Mm -hmm. So then the same can be true if when someone, maybe they walked in the room and they saw a black woman doctor. Are they going to assume that she's the doctor or the nurse or the, the medical assistant? And the then when, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then after, they might go back home and say, 
they're not just going to say, I went to see the doctor today and the doctor came in. They'll, they'll typically need to name these things yes. because it's, it's part of our, again, socialization. Or, or and we've, I've heard this example used many times, <clears throat> the, as a black female physician, you walk in to see the patient and you talk to the patient and then you'll turn around and leave the room and they'll say, well, when is the doctor coming to see me? Yes. I just spent 10 minutes speaking with you, but you could not connect that I was the physician. Might have on the white coat, name badge, the entire thing, but you could not, that person could not connect with the fact that you were their physician. Right. That, and I, I think that there could be many reasons for that in, in terms of the individual, but something well, generally yes. is that this is this is the system that we're talking about. This is a system that we're socialized in. It's kind of like being a fish living in in, in water and understanding certain things and that you are don't the characteristics have. of the ocean that we're in, right? Not just limited to that fish. Right, the water is salty. The pH is of a certain acidic or basic balance. Like those are the constructs within the ocean. This is good stuff. So this is the systemic problem, right? Not just one problem of the individual. See, now I'm all charged up. Doc, listen. Absolutely. So then, how do we? What suggestions did you give in your session yesterday about addressing these? everyday interactions around these types of <laughs> challenges that yes. all of us face, right? Because yes. it's not just a problem or an issue for the people who are on the oppressed side of your equation, but it's this affects all of us in the ocean. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think your example of just interactions with patients and people not assuming that you're a doctor is a great point because those are microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And those microaggressions are rooted in um, unconscious and implicit bias. How about subconscious? Can you say that too? Sure. Oh, okay. okay. I didn't know <laughs> that could be included because I feel like some of it's conscious. But Right. Yes. I, I probably, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So, you know, again, as I said, just being able to talk about it and name it. So and building awareness, building awareness okay. and then building skills to be able to, first of all, recognize when it's happening as well, right? When someone is, is microaggressing, for example, and then taking that courageous step to say something to address it. And I think people don't take that step because they don't want to be mean or unkind they feel like the person didn't quote unquote mean it, that they're, you know, quote unquote well intended, and that all might be true. They might be a great person that just has, you know, been swimming in this salty water ocean, as you put it, for too long, and they don't even realize how they are perpetuating these things. But if they really want to be, uh, you know, kind of, what I call an ally, someone who wants to work towards more equity for everyone, then they're going to be able to take being challenged, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, when, uh, 
when they come into an encounter and they make a faulty assumption, if someone says, no, actually, um, if I tell them, actually, I am your professor. You might not have, you know, assume that I was going to be the professor, but I am your professor. Then they'll, they'll have to say, oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't realize you were going to, you know. Yeah, but you know, the only problem I have with that, naming it and calling it out with that person, then the person who received the microaggression, you do feel this need. Now I have to counsel you, right? But mm. you were the one <laughs> perpetuating the privilege that you have. But now I feel like... Well, now I got to make you feel better, right? About yeah. having said that to me because yeah. now you're uncomfortable, and it was never our intention to be uncomfortable. We just showed up, and right. then you made certain assumptions based on the system, the ocean that we're in. But now, with me saying something, so we're just working through the process that you're bringing up. Yep. I've now named it. I'm calling it out. I well, you know, I actually am your physician. Okay, then what does the other person, how does this continue to play out? Well, it all depends on how they react and sure. respond to that, right? Yeah. Um, the, the thing that, that I really talk about in terms of microaggressions um, is that the intention is one thing that's totally separate from the impact. So that, you know, you being able to say something in, in that context that, you know what, you might not have intended this okay, that's good. as an insult, but the impact on me is that I feel really invalidated. Why would you make this assumption that I was the medical assistant um, and not your doctor when I have been, you know, describing to you my treatment plan, sure. et cetera, et cetera? And it is uncomfortable. So what I always say is that comfort is overrated because if we're going to move on, right. uh, you know, in our everyday interactions and in our society and world to a, a more just place, we're, we're going to need to go through some discomfort. And that's both us stepping up and being courageous every day, um, even if it's in a kind of, uh, you know, kind way, that can still be courageous, right? And maybe you make someone uncomfortable, but hopefully that's a learning moment for them. You know, maybe it won't be. So another metaphor I like to use is the idea of uh, planting a seed. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is really hard work, and, and you're right that it has an impact on people who have to step up and challenge and kind of be an interrupter. Maybe we don't see the positive kind of aha moment response that we want to in that person, right? But maybe we planted a seed and that the next time that they experience this, there won't be an aha moment either, but that's gonna be the watering the seed. And maybe there's gonna be five or 10 interactions where that seed is being watered and watered, but then the more that that particular person is kind of you know, given wisdom and understanding about this broader context, maybe there'll be a sprout. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> go with that. I'll go with that analogy. But that sounds like, you know, a drop in the ocean, right, mm. in terms of that approach to addressing this. What suggestions do we have about addressing this at the, at the system level, at the larger or higher level, yeah. to, to maybe, maybe move change or disrupt this notion of power and privilege on a larger scale? Well, I think we just have to talk about it in our institutions. And 
I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, the Movement of Life Caucus taking on a workshop and topics like this is uh, a real model mm-hmm. in the sense of trying to name it and make this these kind of you know invisible um, uh, dynamics that we all um, experience visible and named. I'll tell you, at the university, you know, we integrated in curriculum, so hopefully that students are learning. It's not just important to know, for example, Latino history. It's or African American history or women's history. It's important to understand how that history is still with us, with these systemic dynamics. So, um, and you know, it's not it's not always an easy conversation. It's certainly not a comfortable conversation all the time, especially if students haven't heard it for the first time. But it's a necessary conversation if we're going to be able to move to really kind of discussing the health disparities and the social determinants that are really impacting um, you know, all sorts of communities across our country. Well, and are the result of the systemic practices of racism, classism, sexism, sexism heterosexism. Heteros- heterosex, ooh, that to the list, heterosexism. I'm learning all kinds of things today. This is just wonderful. Well, I I think you've given us a lot to think about and a lot to chew on. I'm going to be picking your brain personally um, with another couple projects that I have coming down the pipe. But I think um, even just breaking down, you know, an approach to say, let's build awareness, right? Let's recognize the microaggression when it's happening to you, which is sometimes I find, because this happens all the time, right? Um, Where you look up and you're like, wait, did she just... Did that person just say that to me? And then you spend actually another period of time processing, did I just experience what I think I experienced? Did I hear what I think I heard? Yes, I did. Sometimes the person may have left and you might have missed that moment to name it. But also, too, then you experience a whole nother set of processes because, oh, I should have said something. I didn't say something fast enough. Why do they think of me that way? Yeah. And then we can turn around and internalize that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we always think about the impact of repeated microaggressions and how those can be internalized. Because maybe no one's given us permission to name it before. Right. Without, oh, without you being the angry black woman. Absolutely. And microaggressions, we, we talk about them as uh, paper cuts. So have you ever had a bad paper cut? It's very uh, annoying. Yes. It bugs you all day. And... You keep thinking about it, right? That paper cut, everything that you're doing. But think about if you're getting five, ten paper cuts every day. And every day you're experiencing this. Um, We actually know, based on research, uh, that... uh, you know, people that are regularly experiencing microaggressions, it does have an impact on their psychological sense of well-being, on their physical health. Yeah. So it's it's a real issue and challenge, and we need to, um, you know, all step up and understand um, how we're we're kind of part of this system, not only in ways that we're kind of experiencing oppression and exclusion, but in ways that we're experiencing privilege. And then who who's being left out there? What can we do 
to kind of move towards social justice well, and equity. That's that's one of the in one of Dr. McIntosh's articles. She gives like twenty five examples of privilege, and in, in her workshop, I think that really brought it home mm-hmm. um, from from the addressing the privilege perspective of what that looks like. I don't have to worry about my son getting stopped by the police. I don't have to worry about. Um, I don't have to think about my my son's teacher because it's likely going to be a white woman. You know, I don't think about the color of the band aids. So she gave like all of these examples um, just to bring home how to address the privilege side of it, but then how to address the people who are on the the quote unquote oppressed side of it as well. So um, we're going to be talking to you more, Dr. Jimenez. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure learned so much. This is outstanding. Great. And thank you, everyone who's listening, for attending this session of our Health Disparities Podcast. Join us again at movementislifecaucus.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Our new episodes post every two weeks, and look out for our special series featuring thought leaders from our partner organizations who are working to end healthcare disparities to end to increase health equity with passion and purpose. Thank you so much. Thank you.